A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we once again come before you and ask you to join us here in this place, and we trust that you are a keeper of your promises and that you are here. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we made it. Holy Week in the books, thing of the past, at least until next year. What did we learn, though, from all of this church? Speaking of all of this church, you're probably not quite as holy as I am. I attended every single one of our Holy Week services, Monday, Thursday, the Night Watch, Good Friday, Seven Last Words of Christ, Easter morning, even the Holy Saturday Easter egg hunt. If we did it, I was there. And as I went through all of these services, one thing sort of kept coming around and uh, placing itself in the front of my thoughts, one note that rings again and again throughout all of these stories, one thing that you might have gone home from each service thinking might be, gosh, don't be like Jesus' idiot disciples. Let's run the list real quick. On Maundy Thursday, we read about Peter initially refusing to allow Jesus to wash his feet, right? He thought it would be inappropriate for Jesus to be a servant to him. Moments later, he's making the promises that he'll later break in the temple courtyard about being faithful to Jesus, to follow him no matter what the cost, whether it's to prison or even to death. At that same last meal, we read about Jesus acknowledging that one of his disciples, one of his 12 closest friends and followers, will betray him for money. Later on at the night watch, we remembered that even as Jesus was praying so desperately for his father's intervention, that his sweat was like great drops of blood. His disciples slept. And Jesus asked them, could you not even watch with me for one hour? Then on Good Friday, we read of St. Peter's threefold denial of his Savior. We see an angry mob demanding that Barabbas, the insurrectionist and murderer, be released to them instead of Jesus. And when the crowd is told that the powers that find no cause for judgment against their Messiah, they shout all the more, crucify him, crucify him. We read of Jesus' cruel treatment, his torture, his final agonized breaths. And the disciples, during this time, apparently standing by, doing and saying almost nothing. 
And this really finally hit home for me on Easter morning, actually, when we read a piece of scripture from a little bit earlier in John 20, which we read from this morning, where Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb early in the morning expecting to put spices on Jesus' dead body. She is shocked to find that the stone has been rolled away from in front of the tomb. She runs to get Peter and John, who run to see for themselves. John gets there first. We read that he doesn't go in. Peter does go in, and he sees the linen wrappings lying there. But no body, no Jesus. He sees the shroud lying there, but no Jesus. And then we get these incredible two verses from John 20, verses 8 and 9, which go like this. The other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in. He saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Peter and John, two of the most close friends and followers of Jesus Christ, woke up Easter morning expecting to have to figure out what to do with Jesus' corpse. They woke up not thinking for a minute that a resurrection might have happened. To this very moment, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Even on Easter morning, they don't understand. They go to the tomb, they're flabbergasted. They thought there was going to be a body, even though Jesus had told them exactly what had to happen. They thought there was going to be a body. And so this week, one week later, it's only natural. It makes total sense that we are here We've come to the sort of logical conclusion of where we've been heading, the last straw, Doubting Thomas. I mean, what a nickname. No one has ever been prouder than Doubting Thomas. Remember when you were in school and you would mercilessly make fun of the kid who was less cool than you so that nobody would notice how uncool you might be? Maybe some of you are more secure in your coolness than I was but I would make it my business each year to figure out the one kid who was less cool than me and make sure that everybody else knew how uncool that kid was. That's totally what was going on with whomever started calling Thomas Doubting Thomas, who you'll note used to be called the twin, right? A much cooler nickname. But yeah, that's, what happen- that, that's what's happening here. Deflection, right? The disciples are like, We've been messing up royally for a week straight. So let's start calling this guy Doubting Thomas. Maybe the nickname will stick, and people will cut us a little bit of slack. And it worked. We've been calling him Doubting Thomas ever since. But perhaps we shouldn't be. You know the story well. Thomas isn't with the disciples the first time that Jesus shows up after the resurrection. And Thomas doesn't believe them when the disciples tell him that they've seen the risen Christ. He says, not until I see him with my own eyes and put my finger in his wounds, only then will I believe that this thing has happened. Then a week later, Thomas is with them and Jesus shows up again, offers Thomas 
his wounds as proof of the resurrection, and then tells Thomas, do not doubt, but believe. And when we picture that scene of the risen Christ appearing to Thomas, doubting Thomas, and when we reflect on all those many scenes of Holy Week, we almost can't help but think, gosh, I'd like to think that I wouldn't have made so many mistakes, shown so little faith. Or at the very least, we walk out of church promising to redouble our efforts, to buckle down and become the kind of people who won't make those kind of mistakes in the future. Both of those attitudes, either assuming we wouldn't have made the same mistakes or promising to become the kind of people who will no longer make those kind of mistakes, both are actually us running away from the fundamental, painful, embarrassing, central truth of our lives. We are the people who make those mistakes. We are just like Jesus' idiot disciples. We are the people who think it's inappropriate for Jesus to wash our feet, to serve us in that way. We are people who, when the chips are down, claim, either by the things we do or say or do not do or say, that we don't know that man from Nazareth. We've never even met him. We are the people who can't even wait on Jesus for one hour, especially not if something better comes up. Can you imagine waiting and praying for a whole hour? It's almost unfathomable. We are the people who shout for Barabbas, the revolutionary that we really want Jesus to be. We want a Jesus who will fulfill our desires, thank you very much, not a Jesus who has a plan of his own. We are the people who, by every subconscious attempt to justify ourselves without Jesus' help, shout, crucify him, crucify him. We don't need him. We are the people who, even having heard all of Jesus' teaching, might well have approached the tomb thinking that we'd find his body there. After all, as I'm sure you'll agree, people don't rise from the dead. And finally, we are people who doubt everything unless we can see it with our eyes and touch it with our fingers. We are the disciples. We are doubting Thomas. But Jesus comes to Thomas. Thomas doubts, and Jesus comes. This is the good news. There has never, in fact, been better news. And even when it looks like the good news is about to turn into bad news, when Jesus appears to give Thomas a commandment, do not doubt, but believe, putting the sort of weight of responsibility back onto doubting Thomas's weak shoulders. It's actually only after 
Jesus has come to the doubter, holding out his hands, offering Thomas his wounds. This is not so much Jesus commanding Thomas to believe. This is more like a name-changing ceremony, giving Thomas a new nickname, celebrating a new faith. This is what Jesus does, by the way. He comes into a situation with an undeserving person, and he changes that person's name. He changes Saul's name to Paul. Right? Talk about unworthy. <laughs> Saul, the persecutor of the church, murderer of Christians, becomes faithful Paul, author of two-thirds of the New Testament. He changes Simon's name to Peter, the rock upon whom he will build his church in the midst of such unfaithfulness that Jesus has to rebuke him, saying, get behind me, Satan. And now, he gives Thomas a new nickname. That's what do not doubt but believe is really all about. He's not giving Thomas a new job, something new to do. He's giving Thomas a new name. The best nickname of all time. You're not doubting Thomas anymore, he might as well be saying. You've seen me. Now you're believing Thomas. You're faithful Thomas. And he does the same for you and for me. I'm doubting Nick. You're doubting Mary or doubting Sam or doubting William or doubting Jessica, doubting you. And Jesus comes to the doubters. He comes to the faithless. He comes to you and to me, holding out his marred, wounded hands. And he gives us each a new name. When once we were called sinful, faithless, doubting, he calls us beloved, brothers and sisters. He calls us righteous. He calls us faithful. And so now, through this miracle, I'm faithful Nick, and you are faithful you, on account of his accomplished work. By his work on the cross and his resurrected life, he gives us the faith that we lack, enabling us to worship to celebrate and to echo faithful Thomas, my Lord and my God. Amen.